Hey, Rich, welcome to the show. Robin, so good to be with you. First of all, congrats on the release of your book uh, that dropped back in September, probably about a month ago, I think. Yeah, uh, today's the, uh, we're recording this on the 16th. Yesterday was one month, so the book is one month old. Wow, that's great, man. I'm thrilled to have you uh, here on the show today just to unpack some of the ideas that you wrote about. But before you do, I want to thank you for doing this again. <laughs> for those of you that are listening in, I interviewed Rich a few weeks ago, but I forgot to hit record. So uh, that was embarrassing. And uh, now that we have that confession out of the way, uh, why don't we talk about your book, The Deeply Formed Life? What was your motivation for writing it? And what are some of the key areas of life that it addresses? Yeah, uh, the primary reason I wrote it was because I wanted to give the congregation I pastor um, a gift in that uh, these values that I write about uh, really form the life of our congregation for many years. And although I use different language to describe the values, our church is formed and oriented by the five values. And so uh, I write about contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and uh, missional presence. And so when I, when I wrote the book, I really wrote it out of pastoral concern, much like how Eugene Peterson wrote the uh, message translation. It started with the book of Galatians for his congregation. His congregation was trying to understand Paul's language, and he wrote something for them uh, that was accessible. Uh, I wanted to write something that was accessible for leaders in our congregation, for people who are new to us. Uh, and uh, But at the same time, I thought, I think what we're trying to do in Queens uh, is uh, reframing what spiritual formation is. Hmm. And so as opposed to just thinking about spiritual formation from uh, the mountains or from a monastery, you know, I write it from, you know, the subway station and I, I write it with uh, sirens blaring down the street and people rushing here and there in this, you know, we live in the city that never sleeps. So, uh, and so I was trying to reframe spiritual formation and uh, trying to consider how do we think formationally about things like race and sexuality and justice and the interior life. So um, it's, 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 a, it's a fresh, I think, paradigm for spiritual formation. It's great. You mentioned just that you live in, in the city that never sleeps. I live in a city where people are living at a frenetic pace. Some are working, you know, 60, 70 plus hours a week. Their kids are in, you know, multiple activities. They don't take a day off. And, you know, many of them wear it like a, a badge of honor. You know, I'm, I'm busy. Um, you, you explore just the importance of slowing down and finding healthy rhythms uh, in your book. How is interior examination helpful? You know, interior examination is so helpful and it, it actually uh, connects with the contemplative rhythm. So I, I often see like the contemplative rhythms and the interior examination uh, chapters in the book uh, as uh, a lens through which we then engage some of the larger issues, but they, they can certainly be taken independently. And with the interior examination, slowing down and looking within, uh, those two things go hand in hand. Hmm. And as you mentioned, it's often the case that the commandment that most people brag about breaking is the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. Right. Uh, you know, no one brags about violating the sixth commandment, you know, just killed somebody. That was wonderful. You know, no one uh, brags about 
adultery. No one brags about coveting, but we do brag about that fourth commandment and breaking it. And we do so by, um, you know, celebrating how busy we are, all the work that we're accomplishing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, for interior examination and contemplative rhythms, you know, slowing down to live a life that is present to God, present to my neighbor, present to myself, uh, really is indispensable. And this is hard work because we live in a society that bases our value on how much we accomplish, our level of efficiency. Uh, you know, if we're a leader, how big our church is, how many churches we're planting, if you're a leader. Uh, and, 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 and in the process, we do violence against our souls. And so uh, interior examination is really about slowing down our lives to pay attention to what's happening within. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I'll, I'll say it this way, you know, this, the notion of keeping Sabbath is uh, will make you more productive. Uh, Sabbath keeping, resting will make you more efficient. But the goal of Sabbath and interior examination is not to be more efficient. The goal is to resist the idol of efficiency. Hmm. And um, that's the starting point. And if we if we don't start from there, we're going to find ourselves enslaved to a pace that ultimately is not sustainable. What was it that Pete Scazzaro said to you just about, hey, if if you want to get fired, here's a sure <laughs> way that you can get fired. Yeah, that's, that, that's the, the, the story that I tell. And it's a true story. I mean, I was at what was known as Pop Diner uh, down the street from our church. That diner has changed names about four times in the past 10 years. So it was Pop Diner back then. And, you know, I was interviewing. My wife was next to me, Pete and his wife, Jerry. We were sitting across from each other. And, you know, I was eating a grilled cheese sandwich and uh, French fries. And as I'm eating a fry, you know, Pete just out of nowhere. In classic dramatic form, if, if you've ever been around Pete, he, can, he has a flair for the dramatic. And so he goes, Rich, do you know... The only way you'll get fired. And, you know, French fry fell out my mouth and all that. And I was like, no, I'm you know, paying attention. And he says, the only way you'll get fired at New Life, and I think he was speaking a bit hyperbolically, but he said, is if you don't keep the Sabbath, because you won't have the kind of life to sustain the work you're doing as a pastor. Mm-hmm. And I was very strange that moment because I thought, you know, someone would say, if I don't take time to work, if I don't work hard, you're going to get fired here. Right. But he said, if I don't rest well, you're going to get fired here. And so uh, that, uh, that that set me out on a new trajectory some 12 years ago to say, okay, what are the rhythms that I need to sustain me for the long haul? Love that. Um, for someone who just doesn't know how to slow down, what might be a good first step for them? Yeah, you know, I a couple of things when when I when I, I think about the Sabbath first of all, and for some people, you know, the Sabbath is a twenty four hour period without anxiety, without have tos or shoulds, which uh, over time is to result in rest and renewal. Mm-hmm. And so it's a gift. It's not something we have to do. It's something we get to do. Uh, you know, Christ is our Sabbath. He's our Sabbath rest. But the Sabbath is really a spiritual formation practice. And so I really encourage people to experiment with the Sabbath. Uh, at New Life, we talk about uh, four words to frame a Sabbath. And those four, four words are stop, rest, delight, and contemplate. 
Hmm. Those are four important words. So for someone who's wondering, how do I slow down? Uh, I think it starts with, uh, where is there a period during the week? And, it, you know, a Sabbath is a 24-hour literal period. It's not like a metaphorical thing. Like, uh, like I, I took an eight-hour Sabbath. It's like, no, I get it. You, you're getting there. Uh, but it was a third of a Sabbath, you know? Right. <laughs> it's like somebody, I, I gave it a, a 5% tithe. Well, not quite a tithe if it's 5%. Um, so I would say start, where can you start? A lot of people, I talk to people, you know, from all around the world who struggle with this. And they feel intimidated about 24 hours of not doing anything productive. Right. And uh, for me, I say, if it's not 24 hours, where can you start? Can you start with eight? Can you start with 10? Can you start with 12? What can you do? And so, and what that means is you're stopping your paid work and your unpaid work. And so laundry, grocery shopping, whatever, whatever constitutes work for you, you're stopping, you're resting, you're doing good self-care. And self-care, I mean, Parker Palmer, the great Quaker author, said that self-care is never a selfish act. It's simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift that was put on earth to offer others. And that gift is you. You are the gift. Yeah. And so to do good self-care is good stewardship, not, um, not selfishness. Uh, and so, you know, what, where, what are the naps you need to take? What are the things that restore you, your body, your soul, your mind? Uh, then the third thing is delighting. You know, what are the activities that cultivate joy in you? Mm-hmm. And um, it's, you know, the older we adults become, uh, get, the more delight deficient we become. And so delighting, taking joy, finding the things that produce uh, yeah, uh, happiness in our lives is often uh, goes to the wayside because we're so busy. And then the last piece is just contemplate, you know, what, what are... What are the practices? And it might be just five minutes of silence or 10 minutes of Bible reading or meeting with uh, people for, you know, for a time of worship uh, during the Sabbath. But, uh, but I'd say start somewhere. You often start small mm-hmm. and work your way up. Don't try to set a standard that's not uh, reasonable for you. But start small and then so- slowly but surely your body will begin to crave uh, the rest that it really needs. Awesome. So start small. But don't call it a Sabbath. Yeah. <laughs> You're working your way up. You're working your way right. up. <laughs> That's right. Baby steps. Can you give us a, a brief example, maybe from your own life, um, of what you learned about yourself during a time of self-examination in regards to your emotions? What I regularly learn about myself. So this is like real time, Robin. This is not like 10 years ago I learned. This is like 10 minutes ago I learned. Uh, you know, I, I, I learn number one how much my past continues to impact my present. Mm. And, um, you know, this past Tuesday I met with, I have, I have seasonal therapy where I see a, a you know, a trained professional, a, a psychologist. And, you know, whenever I find myself caught up in anxiety, I just, I just need to check in with someone who's, you know, who knows what they're talking about. And so this past Tuesday, for an hour, I had my kind of seasonal appointment. And uh, the previous couple of weeks, you know, we're in a pandemic, we are wrestling with matters of race and political hostility. And uh, I mean, whether masks should be worn or not. I mean, it's just anxiety all over the place, disagreements. all, And I just found my soul getting so tired. I was getting some emails from some congregants that were so distressing and discouraging. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just realized 
there are so many messages from my past that whenever anxiety comes to the surface or whenever conflict comes to the surface, those messages have a way of uh, flooding my consciousness. And, you know, I'm not good enough. I'll never be a good leader. Uh, I'm incompetent. All the messages, and I know they're not true, uh, you know, rationally, cognitively, but there's something deeper than my, my you know, cognitive under- self-understanding. There's something else happening in my soul. And so, uh, you know, I, it's, I, I'm keenly aware of the ways the messages of my past continue to show up in the, in the present. And I'm aware of how much anxiety is often stored in my body. Um, you know, uh, earlier in the pandemic, I found myself having trouble taking satisfying breaths. And I was wondering, like, why, why can't I get a satisfying breath? Mm. And, you know, I just I take a deep breath in and I just feel like I couldn't get one. And uh, after some reflection, some conversation with my wife, I really realized that what was happening was I had tension in, stored in my body because of some hard conversations that I need to have that I needed to have, but was avoiding. And um, when I got to the point where I said, you know, I, I think this is connected to this conversation that I need to have or a conversation I know it's coming that I'm dreading. Right. And I found myself having these conversations. Uh, they, you know, they were difficult, but they were not impossible. And by the end of them, I found myself breathing a bit better. And so I, I just realized how much anxiety is stored in my body and how my body knows before my mind knows that something is wrong. Those are some of the things I'm learning. Wow. Thanks for sharing those. Um, in the book, you talk about experiencing anxiety as a leader. How can anxiety be a gift to us um, as leaders and how can we manage it? when it begins to rear its ugly head. Yeah. Anxiety is a gift. And it's funny because one of the good pieces of advice I got this past Tuesday, I, whenever I have anxious moments, um, I go down a hole. That's that, that's kind of the language that I've used in times of therapy and language that I give to, because my, my experience is not unique to myself. Mm -hmm. I go down a hole and, you know, I'm, I'm inward focused, I'm uh, rehearsing the messages or the interpretations or the assumptions I think people have of me. And I'm just in a bad place. Uh, and so I, I asked a friend of mine, you know, am I subjected to the whole for the rest of my life? Like, will I be in this? Well, there be moments where I'll never have to get in. And he said, uh, yes, you're subjected to the whole the rest of your life. But, <laughs> but what he said was that that was dist- discouraging. And but immediately he said, but you don't have to stay in the hole as long as you have been. Hmm. And and then he said to me, um, Rich, the hole is a gift because imagine you without the hole. The hole is whenever uh, you know the hole keeps me. Uh, connected to human community. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something wrong and I, I want to make, make something right. He said, if you didn't have this, you probably lack empathy. You probably lack attunement with others and yourself. And so even though it's incredibly difficult and often distressing, the times of anxiety that come your way actually show you long to connect with people, but there's something in the moment that's disrupting that. And so uh, so I think it's a gift in that way. In terms of how I've uh, navigated through anxiety, 
And, you know, whether it's anxiety, it's often anxiety for me comes up when they when I recognize disproportionate reactions to a situation. And so mm-hmm. I see an email from someone and I just, you know, my anger, my sadness, my fear just comes to the surface. And uh, I know when there's that disproportion, I think we could feel in ourselves sometimes like, why, why is this bothering me so much? And it's often anxiety. And so whenever that comes to the surface, I usually go through a, a, a kind of a five question process that has become, I've done it so often that it's just become really second nature to me in terms of how I take out my journal that I have right next to me here and I, and I process. Mm-hmm. And there are five questions. Number one is what happened? Number two is what am I feeling? Number three is what's the story I'm telling myself? Number four is what's the gospel say? Number five is what's the counter instinctual act I need to give myself to. And I'll give a very simple example of how I've gone through this process. Mm-hmm. Um, as a pastor, I get lots of affirmation. Um, I probably get more affirmation in the local congregation than anyone uh, put together because I'm on the stage most. They see me whenever something goes, I give a good message, good message, pastor. Thank you. You're helping me. At the same time, I get probably the most criticism than anyone in the church. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so uh, there are times where I get these emails, and you know, why are you doing this? And you said this, and that hurt my feelings, and all of a sudden, I get this reaction in me. But I remember someone, uh, actually, a very well-known Christian and leader in our country, you know, in the U.S. here, and and she had um, very gently, but she criticized me. Uh, not in public, but in a, but in a direct message on social media. And when I read the message, I was just so offended. Even though she said it so kindly, I mm. was just so offended because something was being triggered inside me. And but because I was paying attention to my anxiety in that season, I would usually go down a hole, especially because it's someone I really respect who's criticizing me. Right. Uh, but uh, I went through that process. I sat down, took some deep breaths, and maybe for about twenty minutes. I sat with God and went through those questions. What happened? A well-known Christian leader criticized me. What am I feeling? Shame, deep shame and embarrassment. Hmm. What's the story I'm telling myself? I will never be a competent leader. I will always have significant gifts. And that's just the story. That's that's the message going in. What's the gospel say? God uses uh, broken, frail, often incompetent leaders. <laughs> and what's the counter instinctual act I needed to give myself to in that moment? For me, uh, it was just externalizing that with my wife and mm-hmm. just saying, hey, Rosie, can I just share with you something I've just been feeling the last hour? And just externalizing that for me was cathartic, healing. Uh, but I've had to go through those questions uh, from time to time, sometimes it's seasonal. Mm-hmm. Like I hadn't needed to go through those questions until last week. And prior to that, it was, it was a number of months where I was just doing great. Not that there was no conflict, but for whatever reason, the, the last couple of weeks, my soul has been tired and my anxiety has been up. And so I've needed to go through those questions. So that's for me, a good framework that's helped me. Those questions are so, so helpful. So Rich, thank you for sharing those. One of my favorite sections of the book are the chapters uh, where you talk about uh, racial reconciliation. And uh, would you be able to, to tell us a little bit about the model for racial justice and reconciliation that you lay out in the book? Yeah, you know, when I think about it, I think about it on a couple of levels, and hopefully um, I can offer a few frameworks for people to wrestle with, at least to understand 
how do we engage this? Uh, we can look here. Here are two simple frameworks I use. One is more simpler than the other. But the first is that uh, matters of race need to be addressed on three levels, individually, interpersonally, and institutionally. And uh, because matters of race are so complicated, we often need various vantage points to have a meaningful conversation, which should result in loving action in the world. And so um, we need these three because, you know, someone can have their soul uh, redeemed by Jesus, but still be caught in a system shaped by Satan. And that's true about racism. Uh, and so that's the, the simpler version of the framework that I typically use. To expand that a little bit, when I think about race, I think about six layers where we need to um, look at this conversation from. And it's not necessarily that whoever is engaging in this needs to be an expert in all these areas, not by no means. But we need people who are going to help us see from these various vantage points. And so the six layers for me in terms of the model is we need to see it uh, theologically, historically, sociologically, ecclesiologically, politically, and formationally. And when I say politically, I'm talking about social policy, public policy. How is how are policies impacting people as mm -hmm. it pertains to matters of in, in the racialized world that we live in? In the book, I spend a lot of time focusing on the formational. I cover all of those, uh, but I spend most of my time focusing on the formational element of it. And by the formational element, I'm asking what kind of spirituality is required to have good engagement in matters of race. And, um, and so that formation requires a life of deep prayer. It requires a life of interiority mm -hmm. where I am willing to uh, look within to see the ways that I've been shaped. And so there's a, there's a, uh, a question that I often ask when I'm training leaders in this area. And it's a, I, I try to connect family systems theory learnings with matters of race. And I ask a very simple question and you'd be surprised or maybe not surprised how difficult it often is for people to answer this question. I, I say, in light of your family of origin, your, your parents, the, the folks who raised you, what are the conscious messages that have been given to you? or the unconscious interpretations of life as it pertains to how you see black people? How do you see Latino people? How do you see Asian people, Middle Eastern people, native people, white people? And, you know, how did your family, what message did you get from your family about black people? And to see people squirm <laughs> or write down truthfully, these are the messages that I've received consciously or unconsciously. It's very, it's, it's a fascinating exercise. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've seen people have a really hard time. You know, I'm going over to the tables and how's it going as, you know, as, as they're having individual work and their paper is blank. And I go, why is your paper still blank? You've been in this for like seven minutes, you know? <laughs> and, and they go, well, and I sit down and I, and I, and I hear just the shame to confess, mm -hmm. these are the things that I've believed about black people, about Latino people, about Middle Eastern people. And I'm and I'm next to him, just write it, brother. Right. Write it, man. Come on, name it. And he's like, the hand is shaking and everything. But I just realized that is an important starting point 
to engage matters of race. Yeah. And so how can we shape, um, create policies, whether inside the church or culture inside the church or outside the church, if we're not just being honest with the messages that we're still caring about people. Right. And so um, in the book, I spent some time with that. And um, so that's just a big picture perspective of the model with some particular application with it. That's so good. What has it been like for you uh, leaving your congregation just during the last few months where there have been so many racial discussions and, you know, events? What has that been like? Uh, Because, you know, my understanding is you have a very multicultural church. Yeah. Uh, In one level, it's been uneventful. In another, it's been uh, very challenging. So it's strange that it feels like I'm uh, contradicting myself here. But on one level, it's uneventful in this way. You know, we have 75 nations represented in our church, 123 languages spoken in the neighborhood. Uh, so it's an incredibly diverse area. And so when, um, you know, when George Floyd was killed and uh, all the protests taking place, I regularly talk about racial justice and racial reconciliation. You know, so whether it's a sermon series or whether it's a couple of sentences in a sermon, they're mm-hmm. always hearing something from me. And so when all this happened, because we have a deep commitment to racial justice and racial reconciliation, it really, nothing changed for us. It was, we're just going to do what we always do. Pray publicly when matters of injustice surface, preach the gospel and how the gospel, the impl- you know, one of the fruits of the gospel is a new humanity uh, that's you know, that bridges racial, cultural, economic, gender, economic, you know, bar- cultural barriers and such. And so on one level, we just did what we always did. But on another level, I have found lots of challenges because um, a part of it, I think, is just the impact of social media mm-hmm. where, um, you know, we get into these um, these filters, these, these, these filter bubbles and, and these these tribal, uh, you know, ways to understand the world. And so I've had many conversations, just I'll give you this past Monday that just, I mean, this is for Friday or Monday. I had an hour and a half conversation with an older white couple in our church who's been coming for a long time, who are unapologetically supporters of Donald Trump. Hmm. And they wanted to talk about black lives matter. And, um, and we sat for an hour and a half over Zoom, and some of the conversation was very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> some of it was very enlightening. I asked good questions. They asked me good questions. Uh, we came out with, I think, better understanding from you know with each other. But uh, the way I've navigated it is trying to hold together the priestly and prophetic a- aspects of leadership where. I need to speak out truth. At the same time, there are people in my congregation who don't see things the way I see them. Right. And so how do I now pastor them well, shepherd them well, show grace to them? It, this is really difficult, but uh, we're, we're trying and we're getting by, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So, so difficult in the uh, cultural kind of moment and climate that we're living in right now. Oh, man. Well, Rich, uh, thank you so much, man, just for taking some time uh, to chat with us, to share some of the ideas from your book. It's such, such a good book. 
And, uh, you know, will be a wonderful gift um, to those who read it uh, just for their own formation. And uh, yeah, I just want to encourage uh, anyone listening just to check it out. And, you know, Rich, uh, people can get the book wherever books are sold. But where can people discover a little bit more about you and what you're doing? Yeah, if you went to richvelotis.com, um, you'll see a little bit more about the book and myself as we continue to build that website. I'll be posting a discussion guide. A lot, of, a lot of folks have been asking me, is there a discussion guide that I can take with small groups in my church? And so I'd say um, by uh, early November, we should have a discussion guide that will be available on the website for a small fee. And um, so that's there. And then on, on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, you know, at Rich Velotis, that's usually the spaces where I'm experimenting with thoughts and ideas and trying to see what sticks and what's going to work in a sermon and uh, or not. <laughs> and so um, uh, those are a couple of places where people can check me out and connect with what I'm doing. Yeah, I would encourage folks to do that just because you're, you're quite active on social media. And I can see you processing thoughts and ideas and lots of great conversations kind of happening there. So, so check it out, folks. Well, Rich, uh, listen, thanks again. Um, grace and peace to you and uh, all the best as you continue to lead in this season. Thanks so much, Robin. Great to be here.